Hello and welcome to episode 66 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel, editorial assistant at the Saturday Paper, and I'm joined by Anders Furs, editor of the Daily Review. Hi, Andy. And co-curator of Melbourne Cinematheque and Swinburne University lecturer Eloise Ross. Hello, Eloise. Hey, Andy. In our latest look at what's happening on Melbourne cinema screens, we'll be taking a look at the man on everyone's lips, Martin Scorsese, and his new epic, The Irishman. We'll also be counting down our top three whodunits and going through the Cultural Capital film diary. But first, the film that's inspiring that top three, Ryan Johnson's star-studded murder mystery, Knives Out. I'm Detective Lieutenant Elliot, and this is Trooper Wagner. We just want to ask a few questions. We understand the night of his demise, the family had gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. How was it? The party? Pre-my dad's death? Oh, it was great. I suspect foul play and eliminated new suspects. Depending on your cultural tastes, Ryan Johnson will be known to you as the director behind peak Joseph Gordon-Levitt neo-noir film Brick, the guy who either destroyed or restored Star Wars with The Last Jedi, or that filmmaker who's married to movie podcaster Karina Longworth. But the reason we're talking about him today is because he's the man responsible for Knives Out, a new star-studded whodunit. The second movie about rich white families who are obsessed with board games and live in secluded mansions with hidden passages in as many months, the patriarch of this film family is Harlan Fromby, played by Christopher Plummer. A wealthy, successful mystery writer, Fromby gathers his family for his 85th birthday. Among Harlan's extended family are an intergenerational who's who, played by amongst others, Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Tony Collette and Don Johnson, who's on something of a role at the moment. He's also in HBO's Watchmen. Also at the party, his nurse, Marta Cabrera, played by Ana de Armas. Unfortunately for Fromby, he winds up dead at his own birthday. Who done it? Noted private detective Benoit Blanc arrives on the scene, played with scene-chewing glee by Daniel Craig, along with Detective Lieutenant Elliot, played by Lakeith Stanfield. Before long, we get a fair idea of who, but in the grand tradition of this genre, things are much more complicated than they first seem. Johnson mixes comedy, including moments of slapstick and high farce, with complex plot machinations and a cast who are having fun. From the trailers, I was worried that this would all come across as insufferably smug. Eloise, what did you think? I, similarly to you, was unsure about this film going in because of the trailers. I think I thought the trailer, I'd seen it maybe four times and it just felt like it was putting everything in the trailer that was going to be good about this film and that there was maybe nothing else that it had to offer. Um, It was like overselling itself. And when every single bit that was in the trailer came into the film I didn't laugh you know like the humor had kind of been bled out of it for me so that was really unfortunate so I was really skeptical but I had a really good time in the end I mean it's a film that really doesn't take itself too seriously I think unfortunately the trailer I think does take itself too seriously (laughs) anyway um and so I did have a great time I mean I think it knew that this is like a extremely unlikely story that none of these plot um, revelations would have actually unfolded in in a way it's sort of a film that is divided from realism in that way in that way that you know the genre kind of is um, anti-realist so I laughed a lot I had a great time I kind of had the best time with all of the one-dimensional characters so basically the the two characters who are 
well, the main character who is not one dimensional is Marta and um, maybe the, the grandfather as well who dies. But everyone else is, is you know, terrifically one dimensional and you got every single element that you needed to know about them from the trailer. Yeah, I don't know, Andy? Yeah, I had a great time. I think everyone in the screening that we went to um, had a good time. It felt like a festival audience. There was a lot of engagement. There was a lot of people who were kind of clearly going along with this. And yeah, like you, I really like the way that the the one dimensionality of characters becomes an asset when it's this with this this sort of superficial and it's this improbable and there's all these so many in jokes, so many references to you know Cluedo and to other movies and to other, you know uh, Murder She Wrote. Yes, nice little nod there. See that. Yep. Yeah, Sherlock, all this sorts of other stuff. It's fun to see everyone having so much fun on screen and Ryan Johnson clearly able to do whatever he wants after the success of Star Wars, choosing to go, like, go back to his brick roots and do something involving detectives and crime and solving it. And Yeah, I mean, it must have been really fun for him to do that. And I really like the, the, just the sheer joy that Daniel Craig must be having not being Bond as well. That must be a really nice change. So, yeah, it was really hard not to get caught up in this. Um, when it premiered at TIFF, uh, people seemed to love it there as well and it was everyone thought it was probably going to win the Audience Award, which went to Jojo Rabbit, but... They just as soon as this film has become part of the conversation, everybody seems to be like, "Yes, this is great. This is positive. This is fun." And it was—it looked beautiful. I thought I really liked um, the the house we spent most of our time in. I thought the score was quite interesting. It begins with this weird sort of chamber quartet, and then it instantly throws that away <laughs> once it set the scene, and it starts going on in more of a jazz sort of interesting, like almost rock direction at times. Yeah, the score was great. I thought. Mm. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like setting it up like this kind of. Very kind of reserved mm, um, yeah. mansion kind of setting um, in that nice manner and then just completely kind of interrupts it with, yeah, with all of those other kind of genres that you're mentioning. Yeah. Um, I thought the star of the show was really Ana de Amos, the woman who plays Marta Cabrera, who's the um, the nurse of Christopher Plummer's Harlan Thromby, who becomes the victim. It was really, really interesting the way that she kind of was almost this totemic representation of America in 2019. You know, there, there was so much, like, politics in the background, fleeting conversations around this sort of stuff. The term anchor baby gets used at one point as a slur. But, yeah, the, the way that she was, like, became this character that is, like, buried on the um, cast list at the beginning because, you know, she's not a big name. But then she gradually just kind of makes the role her own. I mean, that's something that I really – sorry, and as I know, I feel like you're itching to talk. But sorry, yes. one of those <laughs> things – that I hated about the trailer and, you know, then subsequently the film was that she was basically absent from the trailer. Um, And she, you're right, was maybe the best thing about this film and clearly the protagonist. And, you know, because she's not a big name and she doesn't sell and she doesn't, she's not playing this kind of like archetype who's taking the piss out of themselves, she had no place in the trailer. And that gave it that smugness that you mentioned Anders and I I don't know how I feel about that I mean it is just a marketing thing that seems a little off but yeah that was that was a bit odd to me Mm. I guess it did have the unexpected um, consequence of it being quite a a bit of a revelation to discover that she is well let alone a character that the main character in a way in the film but it's just interesting watching this so quickly because I only saw last week or the week before um Ready or Not, the horror film which is set in a secluded mansion full of rich a rich white family and like one interloper into the family and the way they respond. Um, and it's very interesting to see how these sort of mainstream Hollywood films are incorporating this sort of class consciousness in a perhaps new or certainly zeitgeisty way. And this film was not 
sort of bogged down in the politics, but rather it, it elevates the politics or it uses the politics to elevate its storytelling in what in a way that I find quite interesting. Um, so it's it's interesting to think about it um, from that perspective. So this film is quite zeitgeisty. Like there are throwaway references to troubled teenage son who's like, you know, it's basically an alt-right Nazi is the way they're describing him. You've got references to Twitter, social media, all this stuff. Like pop culture, you know, this guy Benoit Blanc, Daniel Craig's... Um, famed detective we uh he's apparently famous you know the new yorker have written a profile on him which i think we we see yeah we do uh, we, we get do, a glimpse of it yeah in, uh, chris mm. house. so all of that stuff i found really fun and entertaining but also perhaps maybe i mean i'm the target audience for that kind of stuff like <laughs> i get all that i understand it it's funny it's 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 very witty to me but i do wonder if it was in danger of maybe doing too much of that but i don't think it ever it ever fell entirely over i mean that that, that argument that they were having about immigration and migrant children and babies in cages and stuff I did think was um, at risk of kind of going too far and I was like oh this is not in the sense of like it's an alienating conversation because obviously I don't give a shit about people who are going to be alienated by that kind of thing but I was like oh is this a little too on the nose are you just going a bit too far in kind of like trying to have this as part of your kind of family debate but it did kind of pull back from that in time what I thought was the funniest maybe the funniest line of the film I mean I fucking love Tony Collette she was so good and I was so glad that she and probably like most of the characters who were in the main family in fact disappeared after maybe less than half of the narrative and and kind of you know Marta was in fact the main character because they were too much and I think if I had too much of Tony Collette <laughs> I would have gotten sick of her but her line where she's talking and she's like they're talking about someone being an asshole and they're like Ger-, she says Germany needed an asshole in what 1930 whatever yeah. <laughs> it was just so perfect and she was so like on the ball with everything yeah and that you know that mm. kind of line so it had the specific stuff but it also had that goofy kind of like anything that was kind of like a vague commentary that you could anyone could kind of latch on to yeah we had a great moment it has great moments of being smart and dumb at the same time there's a a line involving gravity's rainbow which i thought was hilarious there's um a literal quote from david lynch about a donut looking at the whole donut donut. rather than the donut (laughs) and i was like oh brilliant yes (laughs) and the other i mean martyr's character tick where oh yeah the vomiting absurdly she cannot tell a lie if she lies she throws up and so the film incorporated that in like quite clever ways. It was full of these wonderfully constructed little moments, traits, uh, narrative seeds that all pay off, I think, very cleverly. And I think that is an example, the way that pays off. Um, yeah, but also really there are so fantastic. many things that I can't go into for spoiler reasons that I didn't. And I'm fascinated that it almost, I think, sets up the possibility of a sequel. Oh. At no point is Blanc ever told that she throws up when she lies. He somehow knows this beforehand. There's all these things that aren't answered that I've got all these questions about. <laughs> My friend actually tweeted that, like, how does he know that she throws up when she lies? And Ryan Johnson replied on Twitter and said he has his sources. So well, I just assumed <laughs> that it was that he vaguely investigated the family and he'd overheard it somewhere. That's what I assumed, but it sounds like it's something a little oh, bit I more. Oh, I think there's, there's so much more to this. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you know, I did kind of think, and then, I don't know, I feel like a little bit of a nag bringing this up, but I was having trouble because I kind of went into this film being a little sceptical, like this was going to be too perfect a film. I thought, 
you know, the two non-white characters in the film, Lieutenant Elliot and Marta, they are the two most stable, straight, well-developed, or Lieutenant Elliot isn't particularly, but he's a straight, you know, cop out of the three of them. And then she's the most kind of human and well-rounded. And everyone else gets to be this kind of like larger-than-life caricature of whatever they're playing. And that to me was slightly troubling because of discomfort that there is in playing up particular stereotypes or I'm not really sure what I'm where this thought is going but there was something in there that just made me think like take a step back and think what is this is this trying to have you know is this trying to be some sort of commentary on one particular thing because you know Ryan Johnson doesn't shy away from commenting on so many other elements mm, yeah. of American and global society in this film. And so what is there particularly in that? I don't really know at this point, but did that seem like a thing to you guys? No, but now that you mention it, um, yes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there, yeah, I mean, there is a question is why don't they get to, I mean, one thing you can say about Marta, well, one thing they always say about Marta in the film without getting too spoiler is, you know, you're a good person. You're Her name is literally Marta. I mean, well, yeah. Hey, hey. Uh, who did it? I love, <laughs> I love that. Anyway, uh, the, <laughs> um, but, I mean, is she to the point of being one-dimensionally good? No, she's. I think she's put in a lot of ethically tricky situations. I mean, and there are points where she's not 100% good. But it's, it is funny how everyone treats her and maybe that is, I think that is part of Johnson's commentary yeah. because everyone because everyone is at pains to repeatedly say you're such a good person you're Marta, part of the family yeah. you're part of the family and you know and but then the way they behave towards her you know clearly shows how much um, how ridiculous that is yeah and then he's played seriously and played for laughs at the same time in, yeah. some, in quite a few of those scenes particularly that one you were talking about earlier where they're having that yeah, the debate about politics. Um, I just want to do a brief shout out to Jamie Lee Curtis's performance. She was quite fabulous as well. Yeah, Tony Collette. It's just it's good to see Tony Collette yeah. having fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, nice to see Australian actress uh, Catherine Langford getting a turn as uh, Meg Thromby. Is she Australian from Adelaide. Yeah, oh, thirteen there you go. reasons why. Very yeah. controversial Netflix show. Who did she play? Meg. Oh, the Meg, the, the, uh, the SJW college student. Yes. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Not really an SJW, really. but that was, yeah. <laughs> no. Um, anyway, this was lots of fun and mm. I can't, you know, the hype around it is so absurd, but every kind of one of these classic whodunits that assembles a cast like this I think is going to attract this attention, except for maybe recently Kenneth Branagh's remake of Murder on the Orient Express. Yes, and forthcoming um, remake of Death on the Nile. Yes, which, <laughs> you know, kind of looks like it's got another crazy cast. Um, yes. Didn't, but I think it's going to attract this attention. It's entertaining and it's smart and it's smartly made entertainment. Yeah, and it's not a franchise or a sequel or it's just kind of fun movie unto itself. And there's not actually that many of them around these days. That's true. It's over. They're all gone. Frank, it's time. It's time you say what happened. Frank, I want you to meet my cousin, Russell Buffalino. Better watch. There's a lot of tough guys around here. Did he tell you? You're not afraid of tough guys, are you? I didn't think so. I was one of a thousand working stiffs until I wasn't no more. 
You got a good friend here. You don't know how good a friend you got. Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me little things to do. Martin Scorsese's The Irishman is a fictional tale of a real history based on the 2004 narrative non-fiction book I Heard You Paint Houses, written by Charles Brandt. It follows the path of Frank Sheeran, Robert De Niro, a relatively minor figure in union history who graduated from small-time exploitation of the goods he drove in trucks to contract killer for the mob. Tracing Sheeran's decades-old memories as an octogenarian, the Irishman weaves its way unchronologically as Sheeran, at some times more clearly than others, recalls and connects the events and people of his past. A scout to foyer writes in a fantastic piece for the Los Angeles Review of Books, Scorsese and editor Thelma Schoonmaker have slowed from the breakneck pace of their past crime pictures to allow the flow of Sheeran's memories to guide the story. At an already famous three and a half hours, this is a grand gangster tale, and perhaps more so than any film entries Scorsese has made about this lifestyle, both a pain and a dirge to the genre he loves. Also starring Joe Pesci as Russell Buffalino, Sheeran's powerfully taciturn mafia boss, Al Pacino as the lively Labour union leader Jimmy Hoffa, and a slew of other greats like Bobby Cannavale, Harvey Keitel, Ray Romano and Stephen Graham. One of Sheeran's daughters, who is the most important to the film, is played by Lucy Galena as a girl and Anna Paquin as a woman, and both actors bring a great deal to the film. This is all in all a terribly sad film and very reflective experience, one without the elation of success that introduced such films like Casino and The Wolf of Wall Street, and its profound yet deflating conclusion reminded me perhaps the most of Scorsese's New York, New York. It shows that love and loss, joy and pain are two sides of the same coin and cannot exist alone, but humans maybe will always be alone. Am I making it sound too poetic? (laughs) Maybe, but this film really moved me. Uh, Netflix will release The Irishman on its streaming service on November 27, and I'm definitely going to go back for a repeat viewing soon. What are your thoughts, Andy? It's a lot to take in. It offers a lot. He's clearly a very personal film that he's making with long people with whom he's had decades of experience. It feels very much like a team effort, like with regard to the talent that he's um, employed, the $159 million budget he was given, the sprawling runtime, the um, creative freedom, um, the fact that there is so many nods to earlier works of his, as well as this being a common subject that people associate with him, this certainly feels like He's just like letting himself luxuriate, I suppose, in this world. And I think that's both its strength and the weakness that I think as well in this film because there is a lot of fascinating characters. There's people clearly loving playing. It's wonderful to see these actors working again, being given these characters that are such a comfortable fit for their skills. Um, I think Pacino is a real standout. Um, the only thing that I can fault with it because, well, actually, the, the initial um, much-publicised digital effects, de-aging technology, which is reputed to be running into the tens of millions of dollars, is kind of jarring at first, which I think a lot of people would agree with. But then you quickly, at least I quickly became used to it. Same. Same. It was jarring um, and I was conscious of it and I thought, "Mm, is something weird? And then I was like, Joe Pesci's nose is a little skinny. And (laughs) then, but you know, you do kind of, I don't know whether you forgive it, but you can ease into it definitely. Yeah, Yeah, the story is just so engrossing Mm. that you you are in Polar Express land for a couple of minutes and then you're kind of out of the weeds, I felt. Yeah. Yeah, what did you make of it, Anders? Um, I it really felt like a major 
work, really, from a group of men in the late winters of their careers. And it is, the film takes that as its subject matter, you know, ageing and, I mean, almost the future. I mean, it's really, it's so interesting because he's telling this story, this apparently true, I mean, the details of it are um, somewhat conflicted, but... um, this story from American 20th century American history when the Italian Mafia was so powerful. And as De Niro, I think, um, says in the film when we get introduced to Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa, you know, not many people these days even know who this guy was, but he was like this huge union leader who like was so politically powerful in America. And he's making this film at a time when a lot of people probably have forgotten that history or it's just nowhere near as relevant. And then could you argue the same thing for Scorsese's filmmaking, for this style of film, for gangster films? I mean, you can extrapolate almost endlessly. Um, So on that level, I think it's a really fascinating and sad look at the passing of time and the way that things that would that feel as if they're so, you know, important. So these guys are at this just adjacent to the centre of American life for like a lot of what they're narrating and the way it all comes down to one old guy in the nursing home at the end with no living relatives who are coming to see him. Like that is, it's all of that is really, I think, um, exceptionally rendered in the film and I think even the CGI de-aging kind of plays into that because you're aware that these actors are old they're very this is probably the last time we're going to see them all acting together and so to watch them wear these younger faces it's deeply bizarre um, but it's also deeply interesting on that level of aging and history that Scorsese appears to be very interested in so yeah I, I think it's a wonderful film I can't wait to rewatch it yeah, because I think it is interesting because we all know what younger Joe Pesci, younger Albertino and De Niro look like and we're getting different versions of them here because De Niro's face is wider now and so they can't quite de-age him to the same way that they that he was, which is actually kind of fine in a way. Like it, it didn't take me out of the story or anything, but I think it is interesting that it forces you to think about, rethink your own relationship with these characters yeah. and your own personal history that everyone's going to bring a different version of that along to the film. I did get a prob- I have a few problems with the Forrest Gumpiness of him as a character just happening to be there on the fringes of key events of the 20th century, that, you know, he supplied arms to the FBI attacks against Castro. He was there on the edge of JFK. He was there on, you know, it's just... Yeah, it just yeah, yeah. And I don't know if anybody came across Bill Tonelli's piece, The Lies of the Irishman, um, which was published uh, on Slate, I think, a little while ago, that basically just goes through and fact-checks it, and it turns out that... Um, he never directly confessed to, to killing Hoffa. He never killed anybody or was even ever I accused mean, of killing everybody. I mean, that's fine, but isn't that just It doesn't just make like, it any worse a, of a film. What a boring thing to no, do. No, it's fascinating. I think it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I mean, it is, but, you know, that's not kind of an issue with the film, I don't think. It, it doesn't make me like it any less. It, I think that kind but, of thing should maybe be read in a, adjacently to the film rather than, you know, Yeah, kind but, of, I, but given that, I would have liked to have seen um, Scorsese play around more with the ego and the swagger of the mafiosos when they get together and they hang out and everyone's like mm. bullshitting and lying and stuff like that. I kind of love, love spending time with people like that. In Goodfellas, he's brilliant at that. In Casino, we get time with That's that. That's so true. But, I mean, you know, I think that he has already done that. And so we already know or people already know that that is what they do, you know, that they all have these huge egos. And this film particularly is concerned with something else, you know, the failures of that life and the silences when people aren't bragging at each other 
what happens in those silences. I think that this is maybe just a film that is not interested in that other kind kind of focus, which is not to me is not was not miss something that was a flaw. It didn't didn't make it any less of a no, film. No, it's um, very interesting how his daughter is. Because she doesn't buy into any of, really, um, or I should say she she's more sceptical about this whole world. She seems to be the only person in his life who offers any sort of resistance to his way of living to, and then, you know, it gradually grows to, like, the strongest possible resistance, I guess. But, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting role and I think a lot, it crystallises a lot of what you were saying there, Eloise. Yeah, I just I feel like this film is about the loneliness and alienation of a really satisfying and successful professional gangster career. You know, people talk about this being, you know, the conclusion to Scorsese's filmmaking career, which is a little depressing if you think about it and maybe presumptuous because, you know, he might make more films. But there is something that's very kind of like final almost to what he's exploring. But I feel like that in shifting it to a different kind of focus on these people's lives, Scorsese is kind of critiquing his own career as somebody Mm, who has already um, critiqued the glamorous life of gangsters. In this career of critiquing it, he celebrates them much more so, I think. So I feel like this exists in a like continuum of the rest of his career, but it is kind of pivoting slightly to something new. I just want to say I really enjoyed the idea of seeing a very long film but giving yourself over to a filmmaker and trusting that this story will unfurl in its own time and it is like a slow unfurling. It takes a long time for Jimmy Hoffa to appear, for Al Pacino to appear. But I just loved being, you know, thinking, okay, we're, we're in it for a long bit of storytelling here and... He's so Scorsese is just so good at conducting that kind of long storytelling, and he does it so well that at no point was I feeling frustrated or impatient at all. In fact, quite the opposite. I really gave myself to him and his filmmaking, and I thought that was what was wonderful about the film. Yeah, I mean, what I found yeah. interesting also was that we have Pacino and um, Pesci in supporting roles. They're ostensibly probably two or three times longer than than Anthony Hopkins in Science of the Lambs' leading role, <laughs> won the Academy Award. Oh, here we go, and he's going to commentate some awards well, yeah, stuff. For I've got to because they're both going to be considered, I think. And it's yep. fascinating because they're giving like essentially lead performances in any other movie because yeah. they deliver I mean, so much. We get such a range from them. They're on so green yeah. for so long. For sure. I mean, I do. Th- who knows what it's going to happen, but I do think that Pesci is lead role quality. Yeah, yeah quality for sure. Well, not quality. I mean, what, you can't devise the quality, but like significance essentially. I mean, he, yeah. you know, he seems almost as prominent as De Niro in this film. He's extraordinarily good, I thought. And just, I yes. mean, he doesn't say much at all really and he doesn't need to. Like the, he's kind of, it's incredible the kind of, acting that we see in his um, facial expressions. Yeah, that is one of Scorsese's superpowers. It's setting somebody up to be sitting behind a table in a suit mm. and we already know within milliseconds how powerful they are. Yeah, and sitting, you know, or standing in the corner of like this wide screen um, with three other characters, you know, like all of those shots of them taking smokos on the road trip. You know, Pesci is just basically in the distance and you can tell already kind of what 
how powerful he is as a character and what he's thinking almost. And that kind of, you know, quality is something so unusual these days. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, th- I thought all of the central performances were really good, particularly Robert De Niro. I have to say, watching this film, I was really strong. I'm like, wow. Particularly when he was playing the older version, like like older than he is now. <laughs> really, He really does um, do uh, a lot of stuff. But, yeah, in those... Yeah, he does f- get furtherly aged. No, yeah, he, he? he de-ages and then he ages. The um, But, yeah, in that final, that epilogue, that sort of 40-minute, 40, 40 half-hour epilogue, I thought he was just so moving. His performance was... I went, yeah, Robert De Niro. Like, yes, <laughs> dude second. can act, he can. Because, <laughs> I, you know, it was easy to forget that. It has been last, a while. Yeah. It has been a while, but he really... No, yeah, I Dirty Grandpa. Really, I know, meet the fuck. I mean, bodies. you know, great, but uh, no, not yeah. quite. This, yeah, this was like another level. It was like, oh yeah, mm. it was cool. It was cool to see that. I've got to say, I don't think the Paquin storyline quite worked for me the same way it worked for you. I felt like toward the beginning we got glimpses of her just watching, and then towards the end, I think she has what four lines in the movie, which I don't think is a problem because her presence is really, really powerful. But I think she's basically meant to represent God or Virgin Mary or some sort of penance and justice that he's never going to be able to achieve and so she's kind of invested with this huge role and in the, toward the end of the movie this becomes increasingly important this is like the thing missing from his life as you were saying and i just don't quite buy it i don't think it was set up quite well enough to convince me that this was the way that it had to kind of come together i'm not spoiling anything by saying this but i think it is i mean that's it, it seems to work for other people more than me you know i also think that that her presence, which was signified by her absence and silence, could have maybe been a little more prominent. I agree with you, Andy. But I, I mean, I don't think that she was necessarily a symbol for anything, you know, like, you know, God or anything else other than just the simple fact that it was, you know, the love of his daughter that he never got or mm. never had and that it's simple enough if it's that. I also think that if we are going to kind of think these characters on the sidelines in their families that showing them what they have missed out on by being involved in this big like ego grabbing kind of masculine scenario uh, that joe so frank hoffer's wife is another kind of essential character in this regard and she doesn't do a whole lot either i mean she's mentioned a lot more than she's kind of um, seen but there is that telephone call at the end which is very important and mm. I think says a lot about what Robert De Niro or what Frank Sheeran is dealing with yeah. or not dealing with. Joe played by Welker White, a.k.a. Mm. Lois Bird from Goodfellas, the babysitter. I thought, I mean, I think with Paquin's character there was a lot of impassive judgment and I just would like to have seen a bit more depth to it, a bit more meat. I mean, at the moment I was like, well, you could probably knock 20 minutes off this, which is sacrilegious to say and I'm sure nobody agrees with me, but <laughs> it didn't quite land the way I was hoping it would. Because I know that he can do this. He's done it before. He's brilliant. But I'm guessing it just wasn't there in Steve Salian's adaptation of the book. I'm just kind of wishing there were more things in the book, I guess, because it seems like there's, he's focused on the stories. He's focused on this Frank Sheeran's deathbed confession, essentially, which comprises this book. And so, yeah, it's stupid to want things to be in a book that aren't there when it's being adapted. But, yeah, overall, I would definitely watch this again. And, yeah, it's a beautiful way to spend three and a half hours. It really is. And it's so... I don't know, it's just so perfect in Scorsese's career to kind of bring this film. Did it remind anyone else of Twin Peaks The Return? (laughs) (laughs) 
as in a, a, a great filmmakers <laughs> like oh. magnum opus toward the end of their career, which in which they're revisiting a lot of the characters and mm. themes that they've had. And it's semi totally Andy. I'm just not yeah, sure if I that, see it everywhere or if this and is and that like <laughs> I mean you are kind of like co- constantly searching for <laughs> meaning links. in life <laughs> um, and David Lynch everywhere. But yeah, I mean you're right, and that you know the kind of that. F- 40 minute like epilogue is very kind of strange and I mean it makes a lot of sense but it's also this like kind of distancing almost surreal experience Mm. when you're kind of just sitting with De Niro going through you know kind of like the process of dying essentially um so yeah I can kind of see that yeah, you know, that streaming link. service gives legendary directors <laughs> nine-figure budget to go and do what they want to for a long period of time. There you go. You heard it here first. <laughs> I love it. Which brings us to this month's film diary. The Tilde Festival showcases the works of trans and gender diverse filmmakers and it runs from 28th of November until December 2 at the Footscray Community Arts Centre. Its program includes Australian documentary Becoming Colleen, Canadian comedy Venus and the American drama Lupe, along with a host of short films and opportunities to meet local filmmakers. You can find out more at tildemelbourne.com. Acme may still be mid-makeover, but that's not stopping at presenting the Japanese Film Festival, which is taking place at the Treasury and Capital Theatres until December 1st. Highlights you can still catch include the cult classic Legend of the Stardust Brothers, the crime drama A Girl Missing, and closing night musical Dance With Me. Find out more and get tickets at japanesefilmfestival.net. The Dead End Film Festival runs from November 29th to 30th at the Coburg Drive-In, and there you can catch short films from the Caribbean Film Collective and work from Syria, Argentina, Thailand and the Philippines. More information is available at def.tv. And can I just interject briefly to say that I really love what the Dead End Film Festival does. I love that they're doing this at the Coburg Drive-In. A couple of months ago, I went to see, they had an amazing screening of Rats in the Rank, the the Sydney-based political documentary from the 90s. Amazing documentary. Anyway, the screening was held at the old Brunswick Council Chambers. Because the documentary set in local government. So we went in, they had the local marching band playing music. We had... We had uh, curried egg sandwiches <laughs> and then we went into the chambers and watched the documentary. It was Classic. amazing. Lovely work, Dead End. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, over at the Asta Cinema, you can catch a 4K restoration of Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove on December 2, a 20th anniversary screening of The Matrix on December the 5th, a 50th anniversary screening of Easy Rider on December the 6th, and an 80th anniversary screening of The Wizard of Oz on December 15th. If excitingly confusing late 60s counterculture surrealism is more your thing, then a double bill of Michelangelo, Antonioni's Blow Up and Zabriskie Point is happening on December 8. Or if you like none of those things, a marathon of Harry Potter movies is happening from 11am on December 7th. As always, you can find out more at astortheatre.net.au. Every person in this room has the perfect motive... Stand back! ...for murder. What do you mean? Murder. But only one of these suspects is the murderer. So we're going to close out this week's episode with another top three. Um, I've spent the last few weeks watching Q-Donuts in preparation for this episode and I feel like there is likely to be a lot of doubling up because I was, didn't realise until I set this that there's a surprisingly small pool of films <laughs> there that actually exist within a closed environment. Do you feel like it was a particularly hard assignment, Andy Hazel? Well, it was a very fun assignment. I don't think I didn't enjoy any of the films, films. I watched. Yeah. I, I guess this does raise a question of at what point does a who done it? 
begin and a murder mystery murder mystery finish whatever i'm trying to say there because it's maybe such a kind of slender genre that that's why you can just have so much fun with them yes yes um, this is kind of what i came across was that mm. it's it's fascinating because everyone knows it's ludicrous to begin with and then you just kind of have fun yeah and i don't know so i kind of i think at the beginning i was like should we have some rules and then i, I kind of realized that it was a bit ridiculous so i'm expecting everyone to have broken them in some way <laughs> because not every movie has suspects becoming victims and everyone staying within a mansion or anything like that it's a very that someone must have written a film studies thesis on this this is such an interesting genre hello has someone written a film studies i don't know don't probably. know okay. probably yeah. So Ello is just like I'll automatic it to my academic mini thesis uh, <laughs> collection <laughs> oh, <yes>. ideas. <laughs> um, Anders, can I start by finding out your number three you favorite? Who done can. it? Can modern audiences have become savvy to the rules of the originals. Uh, I mean, there are still rules, but the rules have changed. And the kill has got to be like way more extreme. <laughs> The unexpected is the new cliché, and virgins can die now. <laughs> to be the new version, you know, 2.0, the killer should be filming the murders. That's yeah, a natural next step in psycho slasher innovation. This is less a whodunit and more a who's doing it, but my <laughs> third favourite whodunit is Wes Craven's Scream 4, <laughs> which is a controversial opinion. But I think this might be more interesting movie than the first one or the other two sequels. I've heard that. I haven't seen the fourth, but I, I've heard um, good things. Yeah, I really, I think it was sort of very harshly judged, including by me, upon release. But rewatching it, it's very interesting, particularly rewatching it now, um, because it does feel very ahead of its time in many ways. It gets the idea of social media and performance. Um, and showbiz commodification of trauma, and it wa- runs with these concepts in really entertaining ways. Um, so basically it follows a few of the main characters decades after the events of the first Scream film. Sydney Prescott, played by Neve Campbell, people fear her because she seems to bring death. Everyone around her seems to be dying because they get stabbed by the classic Scream um, ghost face killer. And much like the first Scream, it's it does sort of throw up characters as potential killers who then get killed one by one and it's never quite who you think. So it's also what I love about this film is it's very meta. So Courtney Cox and David Arquette had split up at the time of filming and they're both in it with a weird relationship in the incorporated into the film. So there's that. And I am going to put a spoiler alert here. Spoiler, 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 spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. <laughs> Emma Roberts plays his character Jill Roberts, who's the cousin of Sidney Prescott, the survivor from the original series. And close your ears if you don't want to hear. <laughs> but it's revealed that Jill is in fact Ghostface the killer. And the reason she's doing it is because she's sick of living in the shadow of her much more famous cousin. Hello, Emma Roberts is Julia Roberts' niece. It's a commentary on professional Whoa. jealousy and showbiz dynasties. Hang on, Amazing. but isn't she making this person more famous by killing people around them and adding to the legend of well, the person? Well, no, sorry, Andy, overthinking that's way it. too much sorry. logic to apply to <laughs> a, who, a who, sorry, not a whodunit, a who's doing it film. Uh, anyway, yes, that's my number three. Scream Great. four. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's one we probably won't have another list. <laughs> Um, great. Well, mine is the classic that may be on Andy's list. Who knows? Let's see. Uh, Death on the Nile from 1978, directed by John Gilliman, I'm going to say. 
murder? Now, join the most brilliant detective of all time. Hercule Poirot. On a mysterious journey down the Nile to the great wonders of the world, where the biggest wonder of them all is who done it. So one of Andy's kind of rules that he set us before, obviously he decided that that rules were too hard, was that uh, our who who done it had to um, preferably be kind of all in one location. Anyway, so Death on the Nile definitely fits the bill um, because it takes place on a cruise, mostly on a cruise. So you know, there's this fantastic cast. Really, really kind of like high-profile actors. I'm going to list some. So it's this is an Agatha Christie classic with Peter Ustinov as Poirot um, and an incredible additional cast including Betty Davis, Angela Lansbury, David Niven, Jane Birkin and Mia Farrow. Basically, this film is completely ludicrous um, <laughs> mystery uh, about the upper class indulging in their fabulously wealthy lifestyle, something which I am always here for. Um, <laughs> it's being, as Andy mentioned, being remade by Kenneth Branagh, and I am very not enthused, shall we, <laughs> shall we say. He's, look, he's made some, some very good films, but he's made some, um, some very tepid ones as well. So <laughs> we shall see, although Army Hammer does seem to fit in this kind of genre. He does, yeah. Um, Army Hammer, who is also in this Rebecca remake, which I am unsure about also, except Kristen Scott Thomas is Mrs. Danvers, and I am so ready for that. Anyway, um, but yeah, Death on the Nile, it's wacky, it's, you know, great fun, the end. All except it's not the end because it's my number three too. <laughs> oh, yay. I just loved it so much. Anthony Schaefer's screenplay, Anthony Schaefer of The Wicker Man. Brilliant. Oh, um, so good. Yeah, it's just so much fun. It's so campy. It's so ludicrous. The colour of the blood in this is like insanely red <laughs> to immediately make you not feel squeamish if you get squeamish. It's one of the best blood. things about the 70s is that insanely red blood. Yes, yeah, totally. It was everywhere. Uh, it also, um, Olivia Hussey and Maggie Smith are also in the cast and both owning it. But I think the best thing about the whole thing, besides actually all being shot on, like, well, mostly being shot on location in Egypt, was the costumes were just so um, incredible. I mean, it won the Academy Award for Anthony Powell, but I'm sure he wasn't alone in making these costumes quite so stunning. Plus, uh, the, so many of the characters are just so beautifully cast. I really feel like they had their pick of the bunch when they decided they were going to adapt this and get a big budget. And so, yeah, Betty Davis just communicates so much with so little. <laughs> she was wonderful. Um, yeah, I agree with everything you say. And, and Peter Houston, I've Poirot forever in my books. <laughs> Um, it's interesting that class rich people seem to be the, the who done it seem to be the domain of yeah that is people. interesting actually. Um, my number two is not set in one location, but it is set amongst wealthy people, and it is the big sleep. Oh, uh, yes, it's a borderline who done it in the sense that the central mystery you still don't know who done it after so convoluted. Yeah, even <laughs> famously novelist Raymond Chandler didn't know who killed the chauffeur. <laughs> yes. uh, so, so there's that. Um, so I've included to emphasise that so many of the pleasures of mystery films, crime films, who done it films, are found outside of the plot. They're found in these things we've been talking about: the archetypal characters, these glamorous settings, and the relationships between different people on screen. So, um, yes, we do have this convoluted mystery plot that doesn't quite make sense but 
what really we're given is a simmering romantic tension between Bogey and Bakul, some fantastic dialogue and a fabulous example of Bakul's singing ability. Um, her voice is just stunning. So the mystery becomes an excuse to give us these amazing little cinematic morsels, which is honestly how I feel about most film plots. Who cares about narrative? The best filmmakers ignore this dumb obsession with quote-unquote storytelling for its own sake and instead use uh, stories as an excuse to give us the things that are way more interesting. Always repays a rewatch, I find. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, I have a DVD or maybe Blu-ray of that which has the – that I've never watched this version but it has the release version and then it has the the version that was made – you know how they made a version originally and then they d- did test screenings and people said, you know, you need more Bogey and Bacall. So they kind of just added more romance between the two of them and more <laughs> sparring. Anyway, it's got that version with it. I don't feel like, why would you watch the version with less of them? The less, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's there for, you know, historical interest. Anyway, <laughs> that I may pick up one day. <laughs> Sometimes the studio notes are correct. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, my number two, I don't know, I just put this on here because what is an Eloise top three without an the 1930s, right? But the 13th guest from 1932. Um, this is a monogram pictures, you know, filmed at IKO, very low budget film. Um, I didn't even write down who the director is because probably um, doesn't matter all that much, to be honest, <laughs> you know, in this kind of, with this kind of film. Um, so this is a Ginger Rogers film, kind of one of her earliest features. She essentially, she pulls up, in a car outside a mansion um, in New York State, I think, and goes inside and it's her 21st birthday, but she is electrocuted and then police come and try and figure out who did it and then basically – I don't even – look, I'm explaining this. This (laughs) makes no sense to me really. I was like, what the hell is happening right now? So essentially, um, spoiler alert, it wasn't Ginger Rogers at all. Someone else went in who had had plastic surgery to look like her (laughs) and – Ginger Rogers come like kind of shows up at the door and the cops are like, what the fuck just happened? Oh, anyway, and then they figure it out and they find the plastic surgeon who did this other person. Anyway, I don't even really know. But essentially there's like a threat that was written about someone who was going to commit a murder and they have to figure out who wrote the threat and the threat was the person who was the 13th guest at this dinner party maybe a decade ago I don't know maybe not quite (laughs) who knows so much crazy stuff happens there's a line you're next unless you've been doing the murders yourself I mean that line should probably be in every who done it pretty classic That's what everyone's thinking. That is a truism. Exactly. I mean, you know, it kind of, it does, it's very messy, but it looks quite nice. There's lots of expressionist lighting. Um, Is it dancing? Not really. No, not in the, you know, not in the Ginger Rogers kind of way, but there's lots of fur coats. Lots of hidden nooks inside this house. Cool. Um, They do go into the city, but mostly they keep coming back to this like you know, creepy house on the outskirts of town. The furniture is covered in sheets for the entire movie. It's black and white and it's kind of fuzzy, but if it was kind of transported into a later era you or even, you know, the following decade, it would look fantastic, like mm. very moody, atmospheric setting kind of thing. It's a very silly film, kind of probably mediocre, but I enjoyed lots of it. So <laughs> there you go. Cool. Um, my number two is uh, Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Oh, so good. Wow. Yeah, which is uh, a very stylish horror murder mystery. 
with um, an Ennio Morricone score that is quite striking. Um, along and striking is how I would describe pretty much every frame of this movie because he's thought very deeply about angles and colors. And if anybody's ever seen any Dario Argento films, that's you mainly come away with scenes in your mind rather than stories and dialogue and screenplay and all that sort of stuff. So in The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which I think was his first English language movie or maybe his first major directorial debut, a writer called Sam Dalmas is played by Tony Musante, is this American guy who's a bit blase. He's meant to be there writing a book about obscure birds, but he's kind of quite famous for being a novelist back in America and he's about to go back. But then as he's walking down the street, he sees a woman being murdered in a very posh, oh, well, he thinks being murdered in a posh art gallery. Um, And the police uh, are convinced that she's the victim of a serial killer. Um, And she didn't actually die. She's stabbed quite brutally and it's bloodily. But um, he decides to help him with the investigation. They take his passport and he's kind of forced to stay in Rome. Pretty quickly, he starts being pursued by somebody who's bent on killing him. Um, And so this doesn't, like, like, adhere to the single location of most whodunits, but Argento kind of makes the, uh, every scene quite claustrophobic, like, unless it's shot inside an art gallery or, or somewhere where it's just quite large and white and kind of equally as oppressive. So he's really, really good at making putting you in the same sh- in the shoes of Masante, who seems to be like quite a logical guy, but also in, in this really, really strange, unsettling situation. Um, and so Argento is like really, really controlled over the filming and the acting. The dialogue is pretty cursory, and the story is is fairly straightforward. It's not that twisty. But it's kind of consumed with this fetishization of black gloves typing letters and knives and people's mouths and eyes and that sort of thing. Um, and so Dalmas is also obsessed with this, having to remember the exact moment that he saw the figure. And so it becomes this whole recurring thing of memory as well. I really, really liked it, but the dub was hilariously bad in a lot of parts. And the dialogue was was pretty laughable as well. I think maybe it was a sketchy translation or something, but it didn't really matter. It's still a remarkable film. Did you have affairs? Mr. Giddies. Did he know about it? Where were you when your husband died? You were seeing someone too. For very long? I don't see anyone for very long, Mr. Giddies. It's difficult for me. Okay, well, my number one looms over so many mystery films. It is... Roman Polanski's Chinatown from 1974. Oh, wow. Sure. So, who killed Hollis Mulray? This question propels much of the action in Roman Polanski's justifiably lauded film. There's one small moment among many that I think explains why. And um, apologies, I am about to self-plagiarise here and paraphrasing something that I once wrote for... Peephole Journal, shout out to friends of the podcast, Peephole Journal. Anyway, midway through some early surveillance, so basically Jack Nicholson plays this guy who's a private investigator who is employed to do surveillance on uh, this woman's husband, Hollis Mulray, who's sort of based on William Mulholland of Mulholland Drive fame, the street, not the film, but the film too, (laughs) because she suspects he's having an affair. Anyway, so midway through, he then... um, dies in the film and the rest of the film is trying to work out who killed him. Midway through uh, some early surveillance of Hollis, Jake returns to his car and we see a piece of paper attached to the windscreen. Thanks to our knowledge of crime film narratives, there's this instant suspense here. Is this piece of paper a clue? Uh, Is it a threat? And the next shot from Jake's perspective reveals it to be a pamphlet urging the reader to, quote, save our city L.A. is dying of thirst, and Jake scrunches this up and throws it away. So it's sort of played as this anticlimactic moment of, oh, it's it's um, not a threat, it's not a, like, secret note, it's this pamphlet, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
Having watched the film, however, we see the flyer for what it is, the biggest clue a detective in Jake's position could ever ignore, because it's the truth not just of who murdered Hollis Mulray and why, but it articulates the very thematic core of the film. It explains everything. It explains the driving force behind Chinatown. And so in that way, that moment rather brilliantly simultaneously flaunts and suppresses its own truth, which is the way the film works. It works at this very complex relationship between film and screenplay that I think uh, makes it really um, a worthwhile film to see. And it's a really interesting example of using genre conventions to explore big, weighty themes about power and about water and about how, you know, LA is built on the desert. It's this mirage city that really shouldn't exist. And so what does that actually mean in terms of political and financial power? And the film explores all of that rather marvellously, I think. Fucking love Chinatown. So good. It's so good. I wish I could self-plagiarise and come up with that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's a pretty compelling argument. And I believe we're getting a prequel in the works <laughs> God, for some really? streaming peak TV yeah, I <laughs> Glimpsed that headline <laughs> the other day. I saw that on Twitter like five Andy ago, looks pained. Oh God, we just got a shining one in the cinema at the moment. Oh, apparently it's surprisingly good. I kind of want to say it. It's got an awful name. Um, no one else has seen it, so you know yeah, well, you should go and. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I've never seen the two Jakes. Have you seen that? The sequel? No, from a few years. I, have I would not. like to, but one day. It's a pretty much perfect film. It's incredible. Well, it is. No, yeah. it is. It is. Anyway. It absolutely. Yes. All right. My number one is maybe not, you know, exactly a whodunit in the sense that it's not a film where pe- people spend the whole time trying to figure out who did it. Um, but it opens with a murder and ends with the twist. So, you know, all the stuff in the middle, I guess, doesn't, you know, it's kind of neither here nor there. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Don't tell anyone what happened in the summer house. I I could kill you! Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Don't tell anyone how sharp the edge of terror can be. Charlotte! Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Don't tell anyone what's wrapped in that rug. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Robert Aldrich's... 1964. <laughs> Why are you laughing? No, no reason. I love it. <laughs> kind of follow up to, you know, whatever happened to Baby Jane. So essentially you spend the whole film kind of thinking that Betty Davis maybe or her dead father decapitated her lover, played by Bruce Dern in the opening scene. Bruce Dern is having an affair with Betty Davis and he's murdered and then the film kind of jumps forward um, 40 years um, so it's set in this, like kind of in this um, isolated antebellum mansion on a plantation in Louisiana. Perfect setting. Um, and then it jumps forward 40 years and Betty Davis is still living in this mansion, but she's reclusive and kind of insane. And it's kind of fantastic because in the opening scene, she and Bruce Dern were kind of like planning to run away together, to run away from this location. And of course he's murdered and so the essential underlying um, thing of this film is that she is in fact kind of has just been tied to this place that she hates um, and she's drawn, you know, back to this house and too traumatised to leave. So it's this kind of very, very kind of thematic and also visually kind of atmospheric um, location. Anyway, 
it's such a fun film. It's, you know, we can kind of think in, in that whodunit kind of sense it doesn't take itself too seriously at all um, because it's has fantastic performances, not only Betty Davis, um, but her housekeeper, Agnes Moorhead, um, is so good and her well-behaved slash, spoiler alert, maniacal cousin played by Olivia de Havilland <laughs> um, is like they're all just like dripping with this kind of like self-aware knowledge of what roles they're playing and how stereotyped all of their characters are, but just how delicious the whole entire thing is. Basically, every character goes mad um, and there are some incredibly gruesome deaths, um, including Bruce Dern's decapitation, um, that make this really a wickedly fun film. The murderer is revealed at the end. Look, um, if it's it pr- pretty much unsuspected. Look, if you wanted to think about it for five seconds, I'm sure you could figure out who done it. But <laughs> it really doesn't matter, essentially. Cool. Um, hello, for my number one, I'm going to go like jump back briefly to the 13th guest because you said, I'm not sure who directed it. The director turns out to have been Albert Ray, who later in his career wrote a screenplay for a movie called Charlie Chan in Reno. And in the movie Gosford Park by Robert Altman, <laughs> um, Bob Balaban plays a Morris Weissman, a director who directs Charlie Chan movies. <gasps> That's so, so good. So it all ties together beautifully. Six degrees of... Yeah. Ultra also, Altman. I can't believe Bob <laughs> Balaban is involved. I mean, he should, he's involved in everything. He just he pops is. up. His little face. Yes, and he's pretty much single-handedly <laughs> responsible for bringing Gosford Park to Robert Altman and giving him his late career wow, flourish. there you go. Yeah. Um, so Altman was coming off the back of Predaport, um, Kansas City, The Gingerbread Man, Cookie's Fortune and Dr. T and the Women, which I believe are all pretty average to bad. <laughs> it was certainly the least, one of the least successful runs of his very, very long career. Minor Altman. Minor Altman, yeah. I mean, still... But then he gets a Julian Fellows script like 10 years before Fellows did Downton Abbey and it's like a cracking amazing script. Um, and so Fellows was like uh, took a lot of his inspiration from his wife whose job is uh, lady-in-waiting to Princess Michael of Kent. So he kind of got lots of this like really good insight into what life was like below stairs because up until then most people had just seen Merchant Ivory films and people were preoccupied with the aristocrats. But in, the, in Gossip Park we get pretty much an equal split of time between above and below stairs. And so I think like a lot of his really, really good films, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller and uh, The Player and Nashville and MASH, he kind of takes this familiar setting and lets us rediscover it all over again by just throwing a cast into a place and letting them be themselves and then telling them, you know, it's more like theatre and so everybody thinks they might be the star and so he just like plays around with the camera angles and the audio. And so even though we're getting all this like obvious artifice, which you automatically have in the case of any sort of whodunit, here, I think it's, it becomes much, much more than that because he, um, as he, in his own words, he says, um, this is a who cares who did it because the murder itself basically um, happens maybe halfway through and then it's, rather than becoming the point, it kind of becomes this call to action which is inverted to become make the murder as a means to expose the hypocrisy in the class system because, as you were saying earlier, Anders, so much of this, these murder mysteries are kind of bound in the world of class. And in this case, um, the murder exposes relations between the classes and reinforces the way in which the class is reaffirmed when people are threatened. So everybody is quite vulnerable already in, in Gosford. Well, the wealthier people are all vulnerable in Gosford Park because of the person who is murdered, played by Michael Gambon, is um, holding the purse strings to all their lifestyles, which is very much a big thing that turned up in Knives Out, I yeah. suppose, as well. So Altman was like 76 when he made this, um, which is, uh, I think, kind of remarkable as well. And so he pretty much looks like, like I suppose in a way of, of Scorsese, he kind of looks back at what he does best and then does it in this whole different setting, this slightly new setting for him, which 
is I, re- I really love the fact that there's this tension and release at play all the way th- because all the way through because we very very the only time we ever leave the mansion is to go on a shooting um the, the shooting event which is the reason Duck that shooting um fa- partridge shooting okay i think or pheasant sho- pheasant shooting sorry. pheasants oh classic yes, where like the groundskeepers are employed to scare the pheasants into the air and then you know uh, so yeah, this, that's the only time, and that's the whole point that this whole you know a weekend away is, which is for a shooting party, has been, is happening. So, um, in his review for the New York Times, Stephen Holden described Gosford Park as our Darwinian shark tank of money grabbing, social climbing, and scurrilous gossip, which I think was a really nice little <laughs> subtle pithy description. Um, yes, it's so much fun. Have you both both seen it? Yes, wonderful film. Yeah, great, good fun. I'm glad we could get Altman in. Yeah. Um, can I briefly do my honourable mentions? Yes, please. Based purely on titles alone, <laughs> having not seen them. Who's Killing All the Great Chefs of Europe? <laughs> Ted Koch of 1978. And oh, the, um, the 1976 satire Murder by Death, which I would love to watch. Mm. I haven't seen it. There's also a 1942 Abbott and Costello film called Who Done It? Actually, spelling the words properly. Oh. Uh, I haven't seen it, but um, there you go. <laughs> so we I should all go see that. that one. <laughs> I do want to see it. Yeah. yeah. Um. I also I rewatched um and then there were none. Oh yeah, yeah. Movie, I watched that. Which is quite fun. It's a little. It's a know. little hokey, but it's yeah. Still, yeah. I can't can't quite work out why Leonard Moulton gave it four stars, but it's, um, it, it's interesting. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. So there's a Family Guy spoof of And Then There Were None, which I didn't realise. I haven't seen this. Someone told me called And Then There Were Fewer. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, which is, you know, Family Guy doesn't have many charms, but that's (laughs) one one of them. (laughs) And that brings us to the end of episode 66 of Cultural Capital. Thank you very much for listening. Um, you can get extra thanks from us from by throwing us some stars our way on iTunes. You can please rate, review, or subscribe us. Um, and we appreciate all of these sorts of things. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. I'm at Eloise Low Ross. And we and think, think you're, you're great. great.